Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen. It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Danielle Paradis, contributing editor here at Canada Land. Chelsea Brown. Today, Danny, we're going to talk about the year of the Glaives. Terry Glavin takes his best shot at the national reckoning over residential school grave discoveries. Also, why journalism is bad for you. Not you, dear listener. No, this job is harmful to us, uh, journalists, says a new study on mental health in the media. Welcome once again to Shortcuts, Danny, where we talk shit about the news. Happy to be here. This episode is brought to everybody by Cody Yang, Jessica Sturm, Bill Reed Fraser, Cassandra Clayman, Colleen Bryant, Max Lupo, Mick Fagan, and Dustin. Hi, I'm Dustin. I live on Langara Island in British Columbia, and I am a marine technician. I support Canada Land because I really enjoy how Jesse tries to find journalists with first-hand knowledge and experience of the issues that they are talking about. Danny, I don't know about you, but I kind of knew that this was coming. I sensed that something like this was coming. It was only a matter of time, you know, before somebody took a big swing at Canada's year of reckoning over the discoveries of graves at residential school sites. I'm not claiming to be Nostradamus here. Was this something that you kind of anticipated as well? I don't think that I anticipated it would come so quickly. Uh, So that was a little bit of a surprise. I first read the New York post piece. Biggest fake news story in Canada. Kamloops mass grave debunked by academics by Dana Kennedy. 
And that wasn't really surprising. I mean, you have the usual suspects and they're talking about, well, they were missing Conrad Black, so that's a shame. You could have had like the Holy Trinity. It was a conservative leaning American news site. They might feel like they can cover things in a way that other people can't or don't. Uh, But I was very surprised to see Terry Glavin in the National Post. Yeah, we'll return to the National Post piece, you know, starting where you started with this New York Post story. That one's a lot, I think, easier to deal with because it's just so disgusting and demonstrably false. When you have an article where, you know, like, yes, to those of us who are familiar with these people to hear, you know, Tom Flanagan and Francis Whittleson, the people that are rounded up here are like, yeah, these are the deniers. And they're saying and they're genocide deniers and they are explicitly denying genocide. And there's just a lack of information. The reader for the New York Post would not know that it's been established and accepted and it's in the TRC uh, Commission's findings that cultural genocide was practiced. Instead, you have people just saying they use a lot of words like cultural genocide, Riard, uh, an academic uh, is quoted, tells the Post. If that's true, there should be excavations. Everything is kept vague. Canadians feel guilty, so they keep quiet. You know, just explicitly this idea that it is owed to Canadians that communities dig up the remains of their ancestors, of children. Otherwise, they must be lying. Like, it's just it's just here, plain as day. It's a fake news story. It's being debunked. There's no room given for a very thoroughly researched historical record in the New York Post piece. It's, it's a lie. The New York Post piece is a lie. It, it's, you're right. This is a much easier piece to start with because it's, it is a lie. But it, it's a lie that will go far for those who found this difficult to stomach. It's probably quite soothing to hear people who are called academics or people who are called experts um, that they're going to ha- that they are able to talk about, oh, well, here's the things that we never really talk about. And there's a really interesting piece in the Star by KJ McCusker talking about the last stage of genocide being denial. And I thought that was a really compelling um, point to make at this uh, one year anniversary of Tecanloops. Yeah, I mean, I guess that kind of feeds into why I feel like I knew this was coming. As a consensus grew across Canada, this national consensus of like shame and grief and shock, and as the news traveled further, you know, out of Canada into the U.S. to the Vatican, it seemed more and more likely to me that it was just a matter of time before somebody would pop up to, to play devil's advocate and and to go into that denial, to kick off a backlash and, and try to debunk the whole thing. Like that's that's the lifespan of this. And I noticed some of those usual suspects kind of like nibbling at the edges of the consensus, sort of like picking away at little points. And as always, there are going to be, you know, the little errors in reporting or, you know, or or substantial ones. You know, I think it is worth correcting that uh, the term mass grave was was bandied about quite, you know, liberally when in fact most of these were not mass graves. Using those details to cast the wider thing into disrepute. But the atmosphere was not welcoming for those uh, contrarian, edgy voices, and they were coming from the crankier fringes of people who, like, are also on the record saying deplorable racist things. So I kind of felt like when the time is right, we're going to see this mainstreamed. We're going to see this laundered, you know? And, you know, it's one thing in the New York Post where people are less familiar, the readership is less familiar. Like, you can kind of get away with things that I think we would clock as showing your ass with racism, like... They close with an anecdote from Thompson Highway, a full-blood Cree, as, as a well-known Canadian composer, author, and pianist. He's now 70. So they found somebody who's willing to say, 
residential schools are great. He said, uh, my oldest brother was illiterate and I went because my father wanted me to. And the education I got there set me up for life. So this is sort of an argument that we won't hear in mainstream Canadian discourse anymore because like the fact that there are some people who had that experience and they're certainly, their experience is their experience and, and, and their account is legitimate. But like, what does that mean or how does that debunk or discredit other people who we know died there? One does not have anything to do really with the other. I don't think you could write that in a Canadian newspaper. No, I don't think that you could. Um, and it's true, like there are people who don't have stories of abuse and I think they're entitled to their stories as much as anybody else. At the same time, like you've said, it's it's not what we're talking about. So in the middle of people talking about tragic experiences, sexual abuse, neglect, death, is it really the time to then come in and take up space and go, well, I had a really great experience. Like that seems actually very just insensitive to your own people. Yeah. And, you know, from a purely journalistic point of view, to select that voice and exclude the others is to mislead and misinform your readers. And the New York Post's very wide, you know, readership, you know, of this right-wing tabloid. But, you know, nevertheless, they've been told a very simple story that this whole thing is debunked. And that is a lie. What we saw in the National Post is a little bit more complicated to parse. Yes. It was clear enough to a lot of readers who read Terry Glavin's piece, The Year of the Graves, How the World's Media Got It Wrong on Residential School Graves. To many readers, indigenous readers, uh, among them people who follow this topic, some academics, this was very easy to dismiss as a piece of straight-up genocide denial. Those thoughts are being shared you know, on social media and elsewhere, that that's what this piece was. And it was residential school denial. But to the general readership of the National Post, I think that it's not so clear. Because if you read the piece, Terry Glavin says explicitly that what was practiced at residential schools was the application of cultural genocide. And he states explicitly he is not a residential school denier. And what this article purports to do, and what Terry Glavin, I think, is telling the world is, this is not my opinion. This is reporting. This is facts. I'm relying on what Indigenous leaders said. I'm, I'm relying on a historical record. He has a long history of covering these things quite extensively. And he is saying, like, if you have a problem with this, that's about your beliefs or your feelings, but this is the truth, what I'm writing here. And I'm not denying genocide. I am criticizing the media coverage. I'm criticizing the government's response. I'm criticizing the public's response with facts. And I think if you are a general reader of the National Post, that might wash for you. And then when you read other people saying, well, this is clearly an act of residential school denial and genocide denial, I think you might be very confused. And in an instance like this, with a piece that is complicated and very long, and at times to me, pretty murky, like, Danny, like either on shortcuts, I could invite somebody on and we could go through it and try to figure it out. Or there are occasions where like what I actually want to do is talk to the author and say, this assertion of fact here, this conclusion you reached, how did you get here? I'm not sure you've provided enough evidence for this. Like, how do you know this? This seems very suggestive and insinuating over here. What are you suggesting? What are you insinuating? Can I understand where you're coming from here? 
There's a fair amount of rhetoric and hyperbole in the piece that does not seem consistent with reporting and seems more like it's coming from an opinion piece. I want to ask about that too. So my practice here and like, I, you know, hopefully the service that this show could provide, you know, the, the Monday show Canada Land, like I've asked Terry Glavin to come on to that show for an accountability interview where I can simply ask him about what he wrote and subject this piece of writing to scrutiny. And he's agreed to do that. And uh, that is where my troubles began. Often, Danny, when I book somebody for an accountability interview, I will like announce that I've done so because sometimes people back out of accountability interviews and I find they're less likely to back out once it's known that they're coming on the show. And when I announced that uh, Terry Glavin was going to come on the show, there was a very, very strong response to that, which I know you caught a bit of. Yeah, uh, people were not very happy with you when you made that announcement. Yeah. And I think that's worth discussing, too. And, like, just to kind of lay, you know, some kind of ground rules out for this, like, I did not want to discuss this with you because, like, I'm seeking your permission to interview Terry Glavin. That's not this exercise. I want to talk to you about the dynamics of the resistance to me interviewing him because they're complicated and they're interesting and they're worth discussing to me. There are two points of view on whether an interview like this should happen. And they both kind of seem to be like reasonable and legitimate to me. One, I think, has to do with me being the person to do the interview. And I certainly heard this, that should we have two white guys going through this and discussing this when it is such a personal issue and it is something that people have experiential knowledge of and greater understanding of than I do? And is that appropriate? And perhaps it is not. On the other hand, there is an argument that why should it be the job of indigenous journalists or indigenous voices every time somebody dusts off one of these pieces and dusts off their argument and decides of their own volition, the National Post and you know Terry Glavin decide that they are going to go and take a shot at whatever it is that he's taking a shot at, the labor and the exercise of whether it's about reasserting a historical record or fighting or pleading for one's own humanity, that that job should not always fall to indigenous journalists and voices, and that there is a role for white or settler uh, journalists to come and like kind of take care of our own and shoulder some of that labor. And it, it it is a role that I have like felt like I could be useful in in the past, and it's, it's played out that way in the past. So th- those are the tensions of, like, that we're trying to balance or figure out. And I wanted to get your take on I'm curious what you think about those kind of, like, I don't know. I, like, I heard both of those arguments being made by one, by, you know, Jesse Wente was critical of, of our decision and asked me to reconsider. And he kind of voiced both of those different arguments. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like, well, then what do we do? Do we just leave this thing unanswered on the front page of the flagship newspaper of the biggest newspaper chain in Canada. Yeah, there's a lot there. First, I think Jesse Wendy was coming from a completely different argument, and that's that it is painful for survivors or children of survivors to hear about residential schools. Like, it's it's a horrible topic to have to see revisited. Um, and that's not on you, but that is what inevitably uh, the discussion ends up being about is parsing the differences in uh, sexual assaults or death or if somebody died in a residential school or if they died of tuberculosis versus neglect. And that's something that 
Indigenous communities across Canada have been dealing with for a year since Kamloops, but really since the founding of what we call Canada. So we have 150 years of people denying the experiences of Indigenous communities, denying the deaths, covering up uh, the abuse refusing to share the records and add on the New York Post article this week. There's a feeling in, in the communities that there's not ever the ability to rest or heal or not be forced to have this dialogue on a national stage. And that is painful. And I think that's what Jesse Wente was alluding to. Now, when we talk about journalism, when it comes to interviewing controversial figures, that is the job, right? I, you're right in that it wouldn't be what listeners expect of you, um, what I expect of you, to just not talk about this uh, for this week. Like, say, would this shortcuts be enough? I don't think it is. I think we do need to explore the impulse to whitewash or uh, soften uh, what happened at residential schools. So I think what's important to keep in mind is that like survivors and children of survivors and people who are affected by the legacy of residential schools are listening. And it's tiresome to be a part of a community where like your oppression is debated all the time. And that's, that's where I think a lot of those responses to you were coming from. It's pain and trauma and anger at never having any space to heal. Like imagine somebody burst into your family funeral and started demanding to talk about how the person died. Have we seen medical records? How do we know they died this way? That's kind of what it is akin to. Yeah. And I think it, it would be entirely inappropriate for me to, to like try to like swoop in on a white horse. I will reassert the historical record. And I don't know that I could do a very good job of that. Like I can do a close read of a piece of media. You know, I can ask reporters questions about their copy and I think that because journalism and reporting is being used as a tool to assert an argument, if there's any value I can provide, it's to apply journalism to that, you know? And I think it would be arrogant to the extreme of me to say, like, that is more important than these people telling me, you know, you're harming people by having this conversation. Like, I hear those voices and I... I don't dismiss that. The question of like, is this doing more harm than good is, is alive and a real one. If nothing else, I think that like the position is to absorb and like listen to all that and, you know, struggle through it and talk about it because that's not a choice that like a lot of indigenous people have as to whether or not, as you say, it's hell. Like I at least can understand that to not have any power over whether these things get dredged up again and again or who's talking or like just the, like how inhumane a lot of this is to not have any control over who's representing your most intimate and painful history, memories, familial issues. Like all this stuff is lived today through intergenerational issues. Like it's, there's no like half getting into this stuff. Like if, if you're going to take it on, I think you have to take it on and make a, like a long-term commitment to it and be, be serious about it. I'm trying to. Yeah. What I would want to ask Terry would be, what is the point of this piece? I don't understand. Like, it, it's ostensibly media criticism, but there's these phrases throughout his piece where he talks about the psychosis that came over people this summer with toppling statues and canceling Canada Day and simultaneously mad about, oh, we've known this forever, but also why are we talking about it now? 
And what do you think, like, in our short attention span that we have as as uh, readers and news consumers, like, what do you think people are supposed to get out of this piece? And is it reasonable to expect that communities in a year, which is no time at all in the history of residential schools, in a year that they would have made the decision to exhume or not exhume, why would we expect communities to prove to us what happened when there's already archival records, which, as I mentioned, we've still been fighting for access to those. The Vatican, hopefully, will be releasing records soon, but they've been less than forthcoming. There's a book that was written in the 1990s from um, John S. Milloy, mm-hmm. and it's uh, called The National Crime, and he he's white. It's like a foundational reading if you're trying to understand the history of residential schools. So I guess I do see a place for settlers when it comes to uncovering this information, when it comes to discussing this information. But not everybody is going to feel comfortable with that. I mean, you know, I was thinking back to like the last time you got in trouble and and you and I talked about this, maybe not the last time, but the the most recent time that is (laughs) closest to this in relevance, Tara Henley. Mm -hmm. And we're dealing with somebody different here. Tara Henley had been on Fox News, which has millions and millions of listeners. Like, it was absurd to think about how you talking to her could spread her information any further. But it was also, I mean, she was talking about cancel culture, like whining about not having enough space. And it was it was entertaining then to hear her challenged. Now, when it comes to this conversation with Terry... I don't want that to be entertainment. I don't want that. Like, maybe a takedown would feel good, but it also feels like using survivors as, like, football in a match between two journalists. Yeah, I remember a quote that Emily Nicola told me in some similar dynamics of, like, it feels like a hockey game where black people are the puck, where you get these types of dynamics. I mean, the Tara Henley, and to remind listeners, that was the former CBC employee who left and wrote a piece about how it's... Diversity is making CBC too woke, and she, you know, spoke out against their hiring practices and articles about queer identity amongst the Filipino culture and language, and this was the problem with the CBC. It was a similar dynamic in in that when I announced that I would be interviewing her, people said, why are you platforming a racist, et cetera, et cetera. And ultimately, I think that that was a worthwhile thing to do. I do think the dynamics here are are different because the stakes are much higher. We're talking about genocide. And I agree with you, like, this is not an exhibition. This is not about entertainment. And Terry Glavin is not Tara Henley. So I will ask him that question, what was the point of this piece? I'll ask him other questions, and I've been asking people to help me with those questions. You know, on Twitter, there were some very forthright voices from some very respected people. I listened to those voices. You, You could get the sense on Twitter that there was unanimity and that there was like a total consensus that Indigenous voices felt like this should by no means happen. I do not purport to speak for Indigenous people, and I don't think anybody could. There is not one opinion. There there are many different opinions. What I can tell listeners is that there are Indigenous people who want this scrutiny and accountability to take place. They're, you know, (laughs) putting a lot of faith in me that I could do a decent job of it and helping me to understand the issues. I'll do my best. You're familiar with genocide denial. That's something that you've, you've, in your own community, that you've experienced. I think that you have some sensitivities where it comes to this, but of course, it is outside of your experience. So I guess I was just going to say, don't fuck it up. Thanks, Danny.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Danny, news stories. There are so many of them. Some slip through the cracks. We try to duly note the good ones that might otherwise go ignored. Do you have something to share today? Yeah, so the story I have, like, I certainly couldn't say that it's, it hasn't gotten any attention, but I think that because there are so many news stories, it's easy for something to n maybe not be at the top of our uh, list. And so I wanted to bring attention to a recent discussion on sexual assault in the military. Yeah. So this story, as I've said, it, it was on the national. We, we certainly couldn't say... Nobody's listening to it, but former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbor and Catherine Bergeron both have experienced sexual harassment while serving in the military, came up with a report and a recommendation that the military not be the people to actually have, not have the legal system to litigate these issues. And that's a pretty huge claim. You know, we, there's this has been like, as well as the year of um, residential schools, it's been like scandal after scandal about the military and its inability to deal with sexual misconduct. Yeah, Cherie Sutrin did some reporting uh, on this for us. And part of her reporting was that like, we just keep reporting and we keep reporting. <laughs> we keep, like, mm -hmm. how many Canadian stories can we file under this sort of collective amnesia? And then the proof comes and then we forget the proof. But here we are again, duly noted. I'd like to duly note that while as a general rule, I, you know, oppose all forms of bigotry and prejudice on grounds, you know, national or otherwise, 
I didn't hate to see that everybody's ganging up on Sweden. <laughs> I was really scared where this was going. It's about time somebody came for the Swedes. I don't know if listeners caught Swedengate. But the internet turned on Sweden. I love the flattening of the world where just like weird shit in different cultures just gets like held up to international scrutiny. And it began on Reddit as awful things often do, when somebody asked, what is the weirdest thing you've had to do at somebody else's house because of their culture or religion? That could have gone into all kinds of nasty places. But the place that it went was somebody wrote that the weirdest thing that happened to them was they slept over at a friend's house. When we woke up, he said he's going downstairs for a few minutes. After 15 minutes, I go on the stairs to see what the fuck is happening. And they're eating breakfast. They see me and tell me he's almost done and will be up there soon. I still think about that shit 25 years later. And then person after person confirmed that if you go to a Swede's house for a play date as a child, their parents will not feed you. This is normal in Sweden. They won't feed visiting children. In fact, people had stories of all kinds of scenarios where Swedes won't feed guests. Don't expect a meal if you go over to a Swede's house, those Swedes. They won't feed you. And, you know, Swedes defended themselves that this is actually this is actually about politeness, you know? This is about thrift, and this is about economizing, and, you know, that kid's parents might have dinner planned for him at home. You don't want to spoil their appetite. And others said, no, I'm Swedish, and I can tell you it's because we're parsimonious and withholding and ungenerous. Stingy bastards. St stingy. Oh, my God. Danny, shame on you. I wouldn't go that far. I don't know what the truth of this is, but it was amusing and fun. And then, of course, more serious people stepped in and said, yeah, you're all having a laugh. Let me tell you some other things about Swedes. And, of course, Sweden, like every country on Earth, has a horrible racist history that got much more dark and serious. And it's very similar to when people make Canada jokes and somebody's got some stupid news story about maple syrup or a moose. And then some unfeeling scold has to step in and be like, I know this is all trivial for you, but, like, actually some serious shit went down in Canada. It's interesting seeing this from the other perspective. I just wanted to good, clean laugh at the expense of Swedes. I didn't want to necessarily be embroiled in the dark history of Swedish racism, but I learned new things. So I want to duly note Swedengate. Go check it out. You know, the last time I was here, we had talked about the capitalist NFTs, and you said, Danny, duly noted is about bringing attention to stories that deserve more attention. So I'm just going to throw that one back to you. Duly noted. Excellent. All right, Danny, last week a major report was released into the mental health of Canadian media workers. It's called the Taking Care Report. A report on mental health, well-being, and trauma among Canadian media workers it was led by the Canadian Journalism Forum on Violence and Trauma, partnership with Carleton University, a professor at Carleton named Matthew Pearson, working with Dave Seglins, who I know, a veteran CBC broadcaster, and uh, this was like a pretty major piece of research. They looked into survey responses from over 1,200 media workers in Canada. And turns out we're all doing great. Everybody's fine. <laughs> what a relief. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I guess this was didn't have legs for a full segment. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> no, that's not what they found. No, no, we're not okay. The mental health symptoms of Canadian media workers are far above Canadian averages. 
69% of us report anxiety, 46% of us depression, 15% PTSD, exacerbated, of course, by the pandemic, repeatedly covering stories related to trauma, not having the appropriate supports, not having supportive colleagues and supervisors who care about journalists, media workers' well-being or the expertise to help them emotionally. Also, of course, facing online harassment, other things. And of course, these symptoms are felt most acutely by women and BIPOC journalists and media workers. Not shocking stuff, but quantified, right? Proven demonstrably. What do you think? Yeah, it's challenging when these stories come out because, of course, then media is forced with, like, reporting on itself, and and that's a little bit of navel-gazing. We are probably the people who are most likely to care the most about these stories. If you know reporters, we have a tendency to only hang out with other journalists. Journalists hang out with journalists. No one else likes us. (laughs) These things weren't really (laughs) shocking. (laughs) Well, right? Like, that's just what happens over the years, is, like, the people that understand you the most are the people who do the job. And if you have, like a spouse or friends who aren't involved in journalism, you try and tell them one of your boring journalist stories and they're just like, okay. Oh no, you don't have to explain <laughs> this to me. I, I, uh, I'm familiar with the terrain. But it's not just us, Jesse. I'm explaining to the listener. It's true. They're here too. Yeah. Let's make it like, we're not people you want to have over. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you like, like really boring FOI stories or graphic details of crime and, like, really off-color humor. And just such a a painful level of self-regard and self-importance and just, like, like, oh, my source is texting. Ah, this is more important than what's happening here. And let me just go on and on with feverish, like, you know, obsession about my work and I don't care about yours. Like, we're the worst. We're the worst. (laughs) So one of the things that really stuck with me was that 85% of journalists and media workers have never received training on mental health and trauma. That's, that's a pretty big deal. Um, you also have 46% report higher risks of drinking and 26% are heavy drinkers. I mean, I was like, oh, only 26%? There's not, it's not like a very health-conscious <laughs> industry, right? At the same time, there was a really interesting article by Nadine Youssef uh, from the Toronto Star again. She's the mental health reporter talking about CBC's Colin Butler being diagnosed with PTSD and having to fight to have his work-related PTSD recognized. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that that really does highlight the problem. And, and as like a media boss yourself, I think it's good to be aware of these things and good to think about the impact of stories on the people that work for you, even if they don't think of it themselves. And Maybe now, when I teach journalism students, I do talk to them about trauma, but certainly no one's ever talked to me about trauma. You know, you went in Mm -hmm. and it was a part of the job. And that wasn't like 15 years ago or anything. (laughs) I'm only 34. So this is an abrupt change, I think, to start talking about this. Yes. And actually, we're both in leadership positions, you to educate people about this and me to, you know, a lot of this is about not having the adequate supports and not having, you know, managers who have the expertise and, and I don't. So, you know, somebody here should or, you know, somebody who helps us should. I take two views of this. Personally speaking, I have been aware of this issue of, you know, PTSD amongst journalists and mental health amongst journalists as a topic 
You know, you would hear like people who report from conflict zones with PTSD. And I, you know, try to listen and cover those types of accounts and hearing about the type of stresses that women and BIPOC journalists face, try to be open and listen. But it was never something that I really related to personally, you know, anxiety, stress, mental health of journalists until the pandemic. And then, yeah, something in the kind of like firewall between that which I cover and the, and the conflicts that I'm involved in and the stresses of the job, like the wall became permeable and, you know, developed anxiety stuff. It's real. Like you can only kind of sequester that stuff or keep it in some silo from the rest of your psyche for so long and coming to a greater understanding of like, this is real. And so you know, I'm kind of open to this kind of research and, and then the, you know, news stories covering it. And then, as you say, Danny, on the other hand, I'm like, ah, are we really going to write stories about how anxious we are and depressed we are to an audience that kind of hates us a lot of the time? And like to an audience who we like we do damage to some like it is it is damaging to people's mental well-being to be misrepresented by the media. And, you know, a lot of people feel that way and they are not really there for stories about how tough our jobs are. It's not that this has to be on the front page of the newspaper every day, but maybe it's something that, like, we shouldn't feel embarrassed to talk about or deal with or to joke about. Like, I guess the the common thing is where we started, you and I, on this is, like, we joke about, like, ah, you know, journalists can only marry other journalists and I'm on my third marriage and we're all hard drinking. And, like, it's something that we regarded through humor and jokes for, I think, decades and decades. Yes, like it's certainly known. Um, I don't think that people view the journalist lifestyle as like overly healthy. I think there was another report, something along the lines of like we were all dehydrated and didn't drink enough water. And um, so it's good to see health. I think you can still integrate health into a workplace, even if it's journalism. You know, camaraderie is important, making sure that the team is working in unity, that they're respectful of one another and notice the impacts of deadlines on each other. Like, And maybe this will help solve that, is that a lot of people who are in journalism have only ever been in journalism. And so they don't know mm-hmm. what other offices or other places do to help deal with similar problems. Not, not necessarily the same, um, but like, let's say the, the medical field is obviously highly stressful. You know, dentists have a very high suicide rate. There's certainly other people that have stress and trauma in their jobs, and we can learn from what other places are doing. And I think that that's important. I suppose in some ways, reporting on it is a bit of accountability. You know, if, if you report on it, then that makes your organization culpable if there's something going on at your newsroom and nobody's helping you with it. So that is a good thing for Canada land. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I'm, I'm, you know, constantly involved in the practice of painting a bullseye on myself. And, you know, Bell did this with Let's Talk Mental Health. It's like, okay, Bell, let's talk mental health. And we've published a number of stories about what's going on at Bell. Look, it's not self-important to regard that you're having trouble. You know, it's not any kind of indulgence to recognize that the tough stuff that we deal with gets in there and can harm us. Yes to? <laughs> this is dumb. Of course, yes. Yes, yes. Like, th- this should be discussed and regarded and dealt with, so. All right. That's shortcuts for this week. Danny, thank you for joining me. Happy to be here. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at jesse at CanadaLand.com. I read everything people send. Danny Parody, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Danny Parody. If you have to. 
This episode's produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by so-called syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. It is like the last moments of our annual sale. So if you would like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts at a ridiculously low price, uh, you're going to have to wait a year to get them at this price again. So go right now to canadaland.com slash join or hit the link in the show notes. 